heavenly history lesson has ended. We now cut back to John cuts back to the action that's happening in Jerusalem. And this is very important because now the citizens of Jerusalem understand the history between Satan and the church and Jesus. They're now, they just barely had the history lesson, right? So they now are prepared for this conflict that's going to happen. And it all comes down to these two harvests. Jesus talked about the, the two harvests when he was ministering, in his, when he first came to earth. And that's why this chapter is called Harvest Season, because it deals with how God sets up the separation of believers and unbelievers so that he can pour out his wrath. Very interesting, very powerful, and importantly, it keeps the timeline of Revelation intact so that it never starts over, it doesn't repeat itself in some sort of weird way, it doesn't mix itself all together. The heavenly history lesson ends, now we see what happens afterwards. Of course, the further we get along, the harder it is to sort of put yourself in that position and say, what would it really be like at this time? What do these plagues really represent? The the seven bowls of wrath that get poured out on the earth and so many interesting questions. This is where we see uh, the the three unclean spirits sent out and the false prophet introduced. There's so much stuff here. But my, my goal in this chapter is to tie the concepts together and show you how it has to be organized exactly this way for the relevant prophecies earlier in the Bible to all add up and point this way. Chapter 12, Harvest Season The Return of Jesus for His first fruits. And I saw, and behold, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having his name and the name of his Father, having been written on their foreheads. Revelation 14, verse 1. After the heavenly history lesson is complete, and the people of the newly converted Jerusalem understand the history of the beast system, Jesus Christ himself returns to Mount Zion and congregates with the 144,000 Israelite elect. Not only do they have the seal of the Father in their forehead, but now they also have the seal of the Son. They are proper Christians, worshipping their Messiah. Once again, I will remind the reader that the trumpets have been heralding the return of Christ for this very remnant the whole time. It is only after the 144,000 Israelite elect are sealed that the trumpets were allowed to sound, because a holy portion of Israel was required to witness the devastation of the earth and be redeemed as the first members of the impending millennial kingdom. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was as of harpists playing there on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those 
who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are those who follow the Lamb wherever he may go. These were redeemed by Jesus from among men, firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no guile was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. Revelation 14, 2-5 The Bible places a great deal of emphasis on these 144,000 elect, but scholars struggle to consider that they could be a new group of post-church believers living in Israel at the time of God's vengeance upon the earth. Their description leaves no room for us to conflate it with our current church, however. They were specially chosen from the twelve tribes of Israel, not the Gentiles or any other group. They were marked with the seal of the Father only at first, but then with the seal of Jesus after the cataclysm, the two witnesses, the earthquake, the heavenly history lesson. The Bible even goes as far as to say that they are blameless, redeemed by Jesus himself from the earth, showing that they were on earth this whole time. Serve as first fruits of the millennial kingdom that is about to appear, not the kingdom of heaven that has been reigning since Christ's first appearance. Not defiled by women, have an guile in them, and now they learn a special song that no one was able to learn except them. We know the exact history of this group, and they are unique. The four winds of destruction were held back to allow them to be sealed initially, which is a unique period in the future, impossible to confuse with any other group. We should all celebrate this future, people, who will fulfill so many prophecies given to the prophets. They are the people prophesied about so frequently in the ancient mystery of God descriptions to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jesus himself. Perhaps we, the saints, are the ones who are playing those harps in heaven for these elects' new song. The wording might suggest that the 144,000 are now dead and stand in heaven for this song, but I will suggest that they learn the new song directly from Jesus on the earthly Mount Zion in Jerusalem, probably in the third temple itself. The music provided by heaven and the presence of Jesus on earth would indicate a powerful bridge has been created between the two realms in the holiest place on earth. This new group is being taught, lifted up, and encouraged to sing. And their voices are being heard spiritually in heaven as if they are there, because on some level, the two places are merging here. We already know that the prayers of the saints were symbolized in heaven as vials full of incense, if not harps as well, thanks to Revelation 5 verse 8. Who is to say that the new song of this first fruits is not specially presented before the throne of God in this blessed hour. There are better reasons yet why these 144,000 cannot be dead at this point. First of all, nothing has killed them. Secondly, they are chosen to participate in the unveiling of the mystery of God, and many important prophecies will converge upon them after this point. 
the gospel preached worldwide one last time. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Revelation 14, 6 Now that Jesus has returned to earth to meet and teach his chosen people, the time for harvest has come. But as we know already, there will be two harvests, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. The wheat must be gathered up to heaven, and the tares must be bundled together and burned. To that end, an angel flies across the world preaching the everlasting gospel to every single nation, people, language, and culture. Despite today's church being dead for a while at this point, God is not willing to let even a single person be destroyed in his wrath who could have been saved if they had heard the promise of redemption through Christ. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. Revelation 14, verse 7. Notice that the gospel this angel preaches is about fearing and glorifying God. This is the same thing we were told about those who were converted in Jerusalem after the earthquake that killed 7,000 men. They feared and gave glory to God. Why? Because the hour of his judgment is finally arriving. This proves that the evil men who were hiding under the mountains in Revelation 6, 16-17 were mistaken when they said, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? What they experienced was nothing but a hint of the true hour of judgment. We should also notice that there is special emphasis put on God being the one who created the universe, because the 666 humanist-slash-atheist ideology of Satan is entirely about denying this reality, which especially provokes God. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation 14, verse 8. We will discuss this at length in the next chapter. But for now, let's consider that the city in question is not literally called Babylon, but is compared to it by God. It is known for spiritually fornicating, and this provokes God. This surely has something to do with the mystery of God that has troubled the prophets and raised so many questions throughout the millennia. This second angel's warning is given to the same people who just barely heard the gospel being preached to them, elaborating on the promise of God's hour of judgment. And the third angel followed them, 
saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 9-13 The third angel drives the point home clearly for those who still haven't figured it out. All those who wish to avoid eternal damnation and fiery torment must fear God alone and give up their lives in exchange for salvation. John is specially told to write down that those who die in the Lord from this point on will be blessed, just to make sure the point is unmistakable. That's because it is only at this point, after witnessing the cataclysms on the earth, the plagues of the two witnesses, and having had the gospel preached to them directly by angels, that the ultimate punishment is promised for those who continue to stubbornly reject God, eternal torment in the lake of fire. Until now, the mark of the beast, humanism slash atheism, and false Christianity has been accepted by mankind out of ignorance, deception, and the satanic conspiracy's effectiveness at demonizing the true church. But that time is past. In this miraculous final phase of God's plan, faith is no longer about believing whether God exists or the Bible is true but its deeper and older meaning, which is whether a person is willing to sacrifice their life with confidence that God's promises are true. There will certainly be some kind of satanic countermessage to this divine warning happening around the world, and people who turn to God will be mercilessly killed, if not tortured, for taking God's side at this hour. This is exactly what God wants because he doesn't want even one Christian to remain in the crossfire of what's about to come. The Spiritual Call to Begin the Harvest And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, having on his head a golden crown, eternal dominion, and in his hand a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Revelation fourteen, fourteen to 20 Just as the heavenly breaking of the seals and the golden censer signaled future events on earth, these two harvests take place before the physical manifestations start to unfold on earth. The two harvests represent the eventual killing of all the believers who decide to listen to the three angels, giving up their lives for eternal salvation, and, on the other hand, the destruction of all those who reject the gospel and take the mark of the beast after this point, believing in whatever Gnostic cult reigns over their minds and promises victory over God. But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew thirteen, twenty-nine to 30 Obviously, there is a shift in metaphors here, as the final reaping about grapes and Jesus' teaching was about tares and wheat. But the point remains the same. Two different harvests, which can only take place when the crops are fully ripe. In this critical teaching by Jesus, the barn could represent Jerusalem and the 144,000 elect who are now with him. Or it could represent heaven as the final destination for all those new believers who are giving up their lives. The Vials and the New Arrivals And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. Revelation 15, verse 1. Notice that these are the last plagues, the final ones. They are in no way repeating what has already happened. It is not 
a different perspective of the same subject. To further emphasize this, the metaphor has been changed once again, and for a very good reason. These vials represent a stockpile of holy anger God has been keeping for millennia, whereas the seals were a top-secret strategy for quietly building up Satan's power on earth with mysterious processes. And the trumpets are an open terrorizing of the evil world, warning about what is about to come in order to convert Jerusalem from Satan's grip. These vials are the ultimate release of God's built-up indignation, judgment, and condemnation on the ungodly, without danger of collateral damage. He has been holding back his wrath this whole time because the wheat and the tares were still somewhat mixed together, at least in some regions of the world. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast satanic, Roman, spiritual imperialism, and over his image, the secular renaissance, and over his mark, ungodly devotion to false causes, and over the number of his name, humanism slash atheism, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. The new arrivals have come up to heaven after being killed on the earth. They were killed because they rejected the beast system, after the three angels preached to the entire world in every language. They are called victorious as a result. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. They celebrate both Moses and Jesus, recognizing the history of the covenant God has made with humanity, not just God. Presumably, this means the three angels taught them enough to appreciate how enduring God's patience has been toward humanity, and Israel in particular. They love that his judgments are manifesting themselves finally. And after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels, the same ones who oversaw the churches and had the trumpets, came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth for ever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God, and from his power, 
and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Revelation 15, 5 to 8. Let's look at the timing first. Only after the singing of the new arrivals does the tabernacle, not the temple, open, perhaps signaling that the believers are allowed to enter and worship in the tabernacle until the temple is not being filled up with the smoke of God's glory. The angels with the seven plagues and the new golden girdles come out of the temple. They receive the vials full of wrath. Presumably, after the seven plagues are fulfilled, the believers can return to the temple, which is preferable to the tabernacle. Wrath poured out on the beast's adherence. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Revelation 16, 1-2 Clearly, there are still people on earth devoted to the beast system, but we don't know how many. We can't go by the heavenly history lesson because it symbolically exaggerates many elements to make its point and turns thousands of years of abstract history into abstract little vignettes. So while it says that everyone on earth worshipped the beast, it also portrays Jesus Christ as being a newborn child when he was taken up to heaven. Jesus was a grown man, and not every culture and individual on the planet was inducted into the beast system. This does not discredit the history lesson, because God is simplifying and characterizing history the way he sees it, or at least the way he wants those people to see it. Of course, it's also possible that literally everybody outside of Jerusalem is now a subject of the beast since the angels preached and gave them a clear choice. More plagues are poured out, killing everything in the sea and making it and the rivers and fountains like putrefied blood. Angels praise this because the people are guilty of shedding the blood of the saints and the prophets. Specifically, they find it fitting that they now have blood to drink, meaning this will presumably have a major impact on life going forward. In literal terms, it may be the contaminating effect of the meteors continuing to spread, the process of turning the water into blood, may be gradual or sped up, affecting more and more people with the collapse of the ocean's ecosystems and all the ramifications. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. 
Revelation 16, 8-9. The ozone layer of the Earth may be badly damaged by the raining down of all the meteors and the rising smoke out of the bottomless pit. If so, it only makes sense that sunlight would burn people badly in the regions affected. Then, the fifth one poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues from the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their ulcers, and they did not repent of their works. Revelation sixteen, ten to 11 This sounds like a culmination of many effects in our interpretation. If the location of the kingdom of the beast remains southern Europe and Italy, it would be near the middle of the cataclysm that devastated a third of the planet. The darkness could be from toxic smoke, which would still be flying up from the hole in the earth, perhaps now descending back to the earth as a massive shroud of toxic smog blocking the light. Volcanic eruptions tend to have this effect, and the chemical composition of the meteor that's burning up could make it even worse. The pain seems to be mostly due to the existing sores and agonies. Clearing the Path for Evil Then the sixth one poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Revelation 16, verse 12. Here we see the Euphrates River mentioned by name yet again, reminding us of the ongoing effects of the burning torch meteor that landed there. But where is there exactly? The river itself is the largest in the region, beginning in Turkey and flowing all the way down to the Persian Gulf through Syria and Iraq. Well, because the river is dried up, this tells us it must be northward, closer to Turkey. I believe this is the location for several reasons. For one, God probably still considers Turkey to be part of the beast kingdom geographically, if not the location of Satan's throne. Remember Revelation 2 verse 13, where Jesus says, Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. This message was sent to the church in Pergamum, which is located inside ancient Greece, which is modern-day Turkey. None of it is coincidence. The pouring out of darkness on the throne of the beast would logically correlate with the drying out of the Euphrates River, which is where Jesus said Satan's throne was. The themes converge. Remember that Constantine the Great officially changed the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome in Italy to Constantinople, Greece, which is today's Istanbul, Turkey. 
the beast's throne and kingdom is now dark from the smoke. The Euphrates River starts here and is now dried up, making way for the kings of the east. We will talk about them more later. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Revelation 16, 13 to 16. What an incredible turn of events. As with the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet, the sixth vial is a major escalation compared to the five before it. Not only is the throne and kingdom of the beast darkened and in agony, but the river Euphrates dries up completely, and now this. The unclean spirits are described as being like frogs for some reason, but otherwise they are admitted to be the spirits of devils, able to work miracles and convince the world powers to unite in battle against the Lord Jesus Christ. Much like how the beast from the bottomless pit rose up to attack the two witnesses, after they inflicted so much suffering on the world, it seems that Satan has once again been provoked and empowered to make war against God's people. This time their target will be the converted Jerusalem itself. But who are these characters? We know that the dragon was called Satan in the heavenly vision, and we might assume that the beast here is the Pope of the Vatican or some earthly religious emperor. But then we also have the false prophet being introduced. Whoever this is, they are suddenly equal to Satan and the beast in this respect at least. Obviously, many major changes have been happening on earth that John was not able to see or record. This only makes sense. The world was unrepentant after being scorched by fire and cursed God. They have the mark of the beast and are hell-bound anyway, or perhaps not, in their imagination. Remember the Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-seven loophole. Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-seven. If the Gnostic, Satanic, scientist priests ruling the world have gotten any closer to achieving this goal, they might believe they succeeded once again. 
Simply consider the obvious. The false prophet, who may be the only visible character of the three powers, can send out spirit devils to perform actual miracles in front of the kings and powers of the world, not just illusions or tricks. There would be immense eagerness to follow the new religion. Perhaps they can heal wounds, make people immune to the choking black smoke in the air, give people immense speed and stamina or something more directly destructive. Perhaps they can infuse souls into androids, fulfilling the transhumanist dream. There are dozens of major feats that would convince the world to join the cause of this false prophet. And if my interpretation is correct, this false prophet is the same man of sin talked about by Paul regarding the last days, who is entirely different than the fictional Antichrist that the first century Jewish believers had heard about. We'll get to why it's important to distinguish these terms later. Curiously, Jesus Christ decides to give a special blessing if we watch for this. Perhaps this was John's addition alone, reminding the reader, because he felt that readers would prematurely guess when this would happen. Or perhaps he felt the Spirit compelling him to write it down at this point specifically for reasons beyond even his understanding. Either way, it is striking Not only are we reminded that Jesus will come like a thief in the night, but we, or whoever is reading it in the future, are told that we will be blessed if we watch and don't let ourselves be naked and shameful. It's most likely a sort of warning for perseverance for all church generations not to jump to conclusions and begin behaving shamefully because they believe the prophecy is either being fulfilled in their lifetime or will never happen. But I find it extra intriguing because Jesus is already on earth according to chapter 14. He showed up on Mount Zion with the 144,000 Israelite elect singing a new song. How can Jesus show up like a thief in the night when he's already in the most obvious place in the world waiting? This paradox might be why John was moved to write it in this exact verse. The battle of the great day of God Almighty is going to take place at Armageddon, thought of as the Megiddo Valley in Israel. Tourism in modern Israel even advertises the place where it should happen to attract evangelical believers interested in seeing the place where the armies will muster. This does not prove that it's the correct location, but it makes sense. What matters more is that we're finally witnessing the most important prophetic climax of the entire Bible, known generally as the Day of the Lord. This is where all of Israel's hopes have rested since the first prophets, in the final showdown between the evil world and the Messiah who is to deliver them and establish his kingdom on earth. It's the harvest, the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God, and so much more. 
It is the day we should all be excited for, and the day we will be looking forward to while we're in heaven, eager to come back down to earth with Christ. You know, I think out of all the things in this chapter, it's the three angels that really sort of captivates me the most. Because so few people understand that God can just send angels to everyone in the world and preach in their own language. Like, we we always hear atheists and people say, why doesn't he just, you know, show himself and tell us the truth to our faces? You know, this day, why, why do we have to go by history, the Bible, all these other things? Well, we get blessed because we did not see, and yet we believe. We know that. But these final people are living in a post-church world. We've died. And they're being seduced into this horrible system led by the horror of Babylon, the, the mother of harlots, fornicating with the kings of the world, teamed up with Satan. It's this dark age of complete deception. So God sends those angels, and, and I'm just blown away by that, that he finally, he actually does it. And then with that, because it doesn't come from humans, because it comes directly from angels in every single tongue so that they can hear it in their own language, that's when the giant warnings come about taking the mark of the beast at that point. It's different if you take it now out of ignorance. And the next chapter, well, it's called Mother of Harlots, and it's going to deal with this difficult paradox of Jerusalem, which God wants to redeem, but in order to be redeemed, it has to be completely destroyed so that the wrath of God can purge it. And that's something that nobody preaches, but it's central to this theory. So I hope you come back, listen to the evidence, listen to the arguments that I make, and decide for yourself. So long, so long.